Amen. Thanks, Kenny. Well, that song set greased the skids right into our passage for this morning. We're in Luke 17 today, beginning in verse number 20, and we'll take it right to the end of the chapter as we continue our odyssey through Luke. And kudos to all of you for being here at this hour. I think there'll be a swell at 11 o'clock with uh, those who would have normally filled the empty seats here. Luke 17, beginning in verse 20 through uh, 37. Hear God's word. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. And he said to the disciples, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go out or follow them. For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to another, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They will be eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let no one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life will keep it. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said to them, where the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Thus far, God's word. Well, it was about two years ago, uh, actually two years ago next month, that we begin our series in the book of Luke. And at that time, we especially noted three things. First of all, that this book is written by Dr. Luke. Uh, Second, that it's written to a man by the name of Theophilus. And three, uh, it was written so that Theophilus might be certain concerning the things that he'd been taught about Jesus. Now, on most Sunday mornings, Uh, Since then, uh, I've asked myself this question, and the question is this. What is it in this passage, whatever the passage is we happen to be looking at, what is it in this passage that Luke wants Theophilus to be certain of? What's the teaching? What's the event? What's the thing that Luke wants Theophilus to know, 
to understand, to embrace. And it's a helpful question. It's helpful in a couple of ways. First of all, because it it points to what is not just important to Luke, but to God, to God as well, since this book comes endowed with his authority. And then further, since these things are important to God, then they are things that should be important to us and about which we should be certain as well. So as we come to our passage this morning, what is it in verses 20 through 37, the ones that we've just read, that God wants us to be certain of? And we see at least two things. Number one, when Christ came the first time, he came to establish his kingdom, and he did so as Savior. That's there in verses 20 through 22. In fact, we'll see uh, one thing about which we're to be especially certain, and, and, and that is that God's kingdom is not just about a place, but it's about a person. Then the second thing of which we're to be certain is that uh, when Christ comes the second time, it will be to complete God's kingdom. And when he does so, he will do that as judge. And we'll see that there in the second half of verse 22, right on down to the end of the chapter. A quick sidebar here, uh, real quick. It's interesting that uh, the Old Testament is usually characterized as the testament of judgment. And the New Testament is characterized as the testament of salvation. But by and large, it's really just the opposite. Because from what a testament to the apostles preach, uh, salvation was the Old Testament, wasn't it? And from what are we warned of the coming judgment? It's the New Testament. And in this New Testament passage, we're going to find out how to prepare for that judgment, the way in which that judgment is going to come about, and who will and will not be judged. Uh, A gracious warning To be sure, in fact, a couple of times already in this series, we've come on passages that we've um, uh, likened to an MRI machine. Uh, May not show us, may not tell us exactly what, what we want to see, what we want to hear, but it can save our lives. So that's the way forward this morning. Christ's first coming to establish his kingdom as Savior, Christ's second coming to consummate or complete his kingdom, and at that time is judge. Jesus wants us thinking in this passage about eternity. He wants us thinking about ultimate issues. So let's start by uh, considering the fact that when Christ came the first time, he came to establish the kingdom and to do so as Savior. And you'll see there in verse 20, this matter comes up by way of a question from the Pharisees. When will God's kingdom come? Now, it's not a bad question. Uh, The Pharisees didn't ask if God's kingdom was coming. They asked when God's kingdom was coming. And um, uh, uh, they were asking that question because they were expecting the kingdom. They expected it because they read their Bibles. Uh, They read Psalm 47, that God is king over all the earth and reigning over all the nations. Psalm 93, that the Lord is robed in majesty and his throne was established from days of old. Psalm 98, 
that God will judge the world with righteousness and judge the peoples with equity. But they were also expecting the kingdom because they had been listening to Jesus, who said two times over in chapter 10 that the kingdom of God is near you, who instructed his followers in chapter 11 to pray, thy kingdom come, who spoke in chapter 13 of an approaching day when people will come from every direction and recline at table in the kingdom of God. So the Pharisees were on the right track. The problem is they were going in the wrong direction. For instance, in chapter 11, they insisted that if God's kingdom was coming, then Jesus should produce signs from heaven. A demand that strangely overlooked those he had already performed in public and even in their very presence. You have blind made to see back in chapter 7, disabled made to walk in chapter 13, lepers healed in chapter 17, as Scott showed us last week. All of these signs and more were prophetic signs. These things were foretold of the Messiah. These are things with which the Pharisees were familiar and pointed to the very days in which they were living. And this is why five chapters ago, Jesus, he marveled out loud. You know how to interpret the weather, uh, red sky at night, sailor's delight, all that kind of thing. You know how to do that. But why do you not know how to interpret the present time? This is also why here in these two verses, Jesus says to the Pharisees, the kingdom kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. That is, it wasn't coming according to their plan, which uh, uh, held visions of political and religious dominance. Uh, As one scholar put it, if Pilate was still governing Judea, then the kingdom hadn't come. If the pagans were not defeated, then the kingdom hadn't come. If men and women weren't flocking to Zion for instruction, then the kingdom hadn't come. So Jesus adds these words. Don't expect anyone to announce the arrival of the kingdom by saying, look, here it is, or look, there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. Uh, That is, it's within your grasp. Now, Jesus makes this point with a double emphasis. Uh, On the front end of his statement, he uses the word behold, which is like a a verbal exclamation point. You know, that's one of those words that we read so often in the Bible that that we tend to just blow right by it. But it's a verbal exclamation point that's basically communicating Pay attention to what I'm going to say. So that's on the front end of his statement. On the back end of his statement, he uh, concludes with this verbal ending. That is literally rendered, Jesus said to the Pharisees, for behold, the kingdom of God in the midst of you is. It is. The kingdom is here. Straight up. The thing for which you're looking is right in front of you. The kingdom is not just about a place, it's about a person. I am the king, Jesus said. My kingdom is now. It's in your midst. It's within your grasp. But the Pharisees were so focused 
on the kingdom, all the particularities, many of which they had devised for themselves, they couldn't see that the king was right under their nose. They were looking for a kingdom established and announced on their terms, a kingdom to judge the world here and now. But God was revealing it on his terms, in Jesus who said, I didn't come to judge the world, I came to save the world, John 12, 47. In fact, Jesus' declaration to the Pharisees here fulfills the statement that he made back in chapter 9, verse 27, when he said, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. And now eight chapters later, pow, there it is, king and kingdom in their very presence. Now, Jesus' announcement here encourages me. And it encourages me in at least a couple of ways. First, aren't you glad that Jesus didn't need everything going his way in order to establish the kingdom? He didn't need the perfect political landscape. He didn't need uh, the peak religious climate. Uh, He didn't need the precise cultural moment to establish God's kingdom. Jesus inaugurated God's kingdom when uh, politically Rome, with all of its brutalities, was on the ascendancy. Uh, When religiously, Jerusalem, which is the epicenter of of Judaism, was three years, no, not three years, I've got that wrong, three decades from total destruction. In fact, I don't know if you recently read about some archaeological excavation that's been done on the devastation of Jerusalem back in 70 AD. It was profound. It was horrific. Further, when immorality with an array of sexual deviances, some of which are illegal even in our day of license, was du jour. So that's the climate in which Jesus established his kingdom. And that should steal us, especially those of us living here in California. Because it's easy to get discouraged as we witness the overall decline of culture. Uh, I watch a news at night and I have to turn it off because my, my anxiety level is just rising with every program that comes on. But I've really been comforted over the last couple years, especially with this thought, if the Jesus generation, which was born right here on the West Coast, if the Jesus generation uh, grew out of the turbulence of the late 60s and early 70s, why can't another generation like it grow out of the turbulence of our day today? Really. And here's some encouraging signs. Uh, the Asbury Revival which grabbed the attention of major news outlets, has to date spread to over 20 colleges and universities. Uh, The overachieving feature-length film Jesus Revolution, projected to make $7 million, has made over $30 million and, and, and growing. The point being, people are going to see it. And at a time when the church, at least in our part of the world, is is shrinking, Evangelicalism, that is 
gospel-hearted Christianity is growing worldwide. And we have reminders of that right here in our Grace family, which include Nehemi and Naema, Marcus and Talatu, Geraldine and Bernard, all of, who come, all of whom come from the continent of Africa and represent the growing, growing global center of Christianity. So God's kingdom established by Christ will continue to advance even against the headwinds of opposition. Second, Jesus' words impress me because, uh, like the Pharisees, I too can get so caught up in kingdom work that I fail to see the king. And maybe you're that way too. You get so caught up in grace group or food bank or student ministry that you forget the one in whose name and by whose strength you're, you're serving. Truth be told, my tendency really is to be more like Martha. I'm a worrier. Back in chapter 10, she was anxious and troubled by many things, literally being pulled apart and panicked by all of her doings, all of her busyness. I'm a lot less like Mary, whom Jesus declared had chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. And when Jesus said that of Mary, he no doubt had his mind on Psalm 16, 5, in which the good portion is explained to be the Lord himself. Jesus the Lord, the good portion, was in Mary's midst. Jesus the Lord, the good portion, was right there in the midst of the Pharisees. And the good portion is in our midst today. He's in the church, which is the present expression of God's kingdom, revealing God's transformative power, declaring his salvific message, which we've already seen in our series to be one of light and peace and liberty and favor and kingdom power. But not only is Jesus in the midst of our church, he's in the midst of those of us who have placed our faith in him for the forgiveness of our sins. What does Paul say? Christ, where? In you, the hope of glory, that bespeaks a future. Christ in you, the spirit of truth, John 14, 17, that bespeaks reality. Christ in you, counselor, comforter, Isaiah 9, John 14 and 15 and 16, that bespeaks peace. So the question for each of us this morning is, are you looking not just for the kingdom out there, but for the king who wants to make his home right here in the midst of your person. And if you are, are you doing so on his terms or on your own? Are you so busy with kingdom work or, or like the Pharisees, uh, building a kingdom of your own making that you fail to recognize the king? who is in your midst. Well, Jesus now turns his attention away from the Pharisees and he puts it on his followers. And in doing so, he moves away from matters about the present expression of his kingdom to address 
the future one. He looks beyond his first coming to his second coming. He, he goes from the establishment of the kingdom to the completion of it and the judgment that accompanies it. So upon turning to the disciples, Jesus looks to the future, and the first thing he says, you'll see it there in the second half of verse 22. The days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man. Now, the days of the Son of Man are days of prophetic, foreboding, and judgment upon those who oppose God's kingdom, those who look for it and even uh, try to establish it on their own terms. But even as we sang this morning and, and the note on which we ended uh, the, the, the song set, they're days of much anticipated deliverance for those who love, for those who long for Christ's appearing. Notice there in verse 22, Jesus says that, that the desire among God's people for these days is going to be great. Again, we, we sang about it earlier. Lord Jesus, we just want to be with you. In fact, that word, their desire, literally, it's burning hot. It's a burning hot desire to be with Jesus. That desire, we'll, we'll see it uh, next week in chapter 18, uh, will cause us to cry out day and night to the Lord for the final day of justice. In fact, we'll be joined in Revelation 6-9 by those who martyred for their faith will cry out in a loud voice from beyond the grave, O Lord, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood? Further, this desire for Jesus' return and justice will remain intense because it'll be a long time in coming, as it's already been. And as a result, God's people will be tempted to fall for the same kind of phony kingdom predictions uh, to which the Pharisees had succumbed. So Jesus says here in, in verse 23, notice, they'll, they'll say to you, look there. Look here, here comes the kingdom. This reminds me of those who have made those sorts of claims over the years, and especially during my lifetime. Um, I, in fact, I even listed here some of the dates over the course of my lifetime that people have predicted Jesus' return. October 1964, June 21st, 1982, 1988, 1989, September 6, 1994, 1999, April 6, 2000, May 21, 2011, September 29, 2011, October 21st, 2011, May 27, 2012, May 18, 2013, September 28, 2015, June 9, 2019, July 22nd, 2020, and 2021. But they don't end there. There are more for the future. So there are predictions made of Jesus' return for next year, two years from now, six years from now, 34 years from now in 2057. And so Jesus says concerning all of these predictions, don't go out after them. Do not follow them. Your desire may burn for my presence. Your patience may wane 
for the return of my kingdom. Your heart may resonate with John's scripture-ending cry, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord Jesus. But don't give in. Because as the Lord puts it here in verse 24, as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. No one knows the hour of Jesus coming. We uh, learned that earlier in this book. But everyone will know when it comes. And Jesus is clear about that. It's going to be like lightning. It's going to be sudden. It's going to be pervasive. And it will be unmistakable. A modest preview of which occurred back in chapter 9, verse 29, at Jesus' transfiguration And the NIV says there that Jesus' garments became as a flash of lightning. It was apparent not only who he was, but what he was. But before any of that happens, we see here in verse 25 that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. Now, this is Jesus' fifth prediction of his suffering and rejection. The last two were in chapter 9. The next one will be in chapter 18. I mentioned this to, to make this point, to stress this point, that Jesus didn't keep his followers in the dark about the difficult days, then or now. In fact, the grammatical emphasis here is such that, that God designed his kingdom to unfold in this fashion. First, Uh, to be established, and that by preaching. Jesus says that back in Luke chapter 4. Second, the necessary suffering and rejection of the king, which began in Jesus' lifetime, and as we'll see uh, in chapter 18, continues to our own day. And then third, the consummation or the completion of the kingdom in the days of the Son of Man. The suffering and rejection of of Christ, summed up in his death and resurrection, are signal reminders that those who love Christ, those who suffer and rejected and are rejected for him in life and even by way of death, have hope. Jesus' work gives us hope. And the hope is this. That on the last day, every, every evil perpetrated, especially against God's kingdom, whether done in public or private, will be brought to justice. It will all come before him. And, and judgment will be meted out fairly. For every slight, for every deception, every offense, all cheating and plagiarism, and conniving, all ethnic hatred and cruelty and genocide, marital violence, schoolyard bullying, religious duplicity, political corruption, workplace injustice, internet scams, verbal abuse, physical abuse, spiritual abuse, for the wars of this generation and others that have wrought brought death and loss and destruction, for empires built on the backs 
of women and children and slaves for compulsory organ harvesting and human vivisection and all forms of torture for the provocation of every innocent tear and loss, there will be justice. There is hope. Which naturally leads to the question, when, when, oh, how long, oh Lord, When is the day coming on which that hope is fixed? And Jesus doesn't tell us that. He doesn't tell his disciples that, but he does tell them how to be ready for it. And to begin, he wants them to know that that day is going to come on a day just like any other. Look at verse 26. Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking, And they were marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. So the day on which Jesus comes back will be like the days of Noah. Life was going on normally. Bunch of imperfect verbs there, just again and again and again. Month after month, year after year, generation after generation. But people were paying no attention to God, just like our own day. Noah enters the ark, and you'll recall that he was bidding his neighbors to join them. Of course, he'd been doing that for all the years he'd been building the ark. But he and the animals go in the ark along with Noah's family, and the door remains open. Those of you who've just read that Uh, story in the Bible reading program will recall, the door remained open an extra week. So people had a final chance to come in, but no one joined Noah and his family except the animals. And then a flood of water destroyed them all. At Tyndale Publishers uh, headquarters in Carroll Stream, Illinois, there is a pictorial rendering, a framed pictorial rendering of that occasion. Uh, The water is rising. Uh, Noah and his family are safe and sound inside the ark. Uh, Outside the ark, standing on rooftops and clamoring to get to higher ground are Noah's neighbors. It's grim. It's chilling. Jesus goes on. Look at verse 28. Just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. In Lot's day, work was going on as normal. Noah's day, life. Lot's day, work. People are paying no attention to God as they grabbed their lunchbox and headed off to the shop. No thought of God. And it's interesting to me here that Jesus doesn't enumerate the well-known sins of Sodom and Gomorrah. No, he simply refers to their self-absorbed ignorance of him. Paid no attention to him whatsoever. So Lot flees Sodom, but not before warning his future sons-in-law to come with him. But no one joined him or his family as they escaped. And in this case, not a flood of water, but a flood of fire destroyed those who were left. 
So Jesus is very clear here that to prepare for that day, the way to prepare for that day is to do so today. It's an urgent matter. He goes on in verse 31. He says, on that day, that day being the the beginning of the end, let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take them away, and likewise, let the one who's out in the field not turn back. And then look at verse 34. In that night, uh, night being a metaphor for the end of the age, but the beginning of a new one, there will be two in one bed, One's going to be taken, the other left. There will be two women grinding together. One will be taken, the other left. So the point here to Jesus' warning is simply this. First, if you see this day coming and you do nothing about it, then you're at great risk of eternal peril. This is why Paul wrote to the Corinthian church, Now is the day of salvation. And second, when that day arrives, the results are going to be absolute. No second chance, no mulligans, no do-overs. Those in Christ will be removed and saved like Noah and like Lot. And those who are not in Christ will remain and be judged, as it were, left to the vultures, as we see there in verse 37. So what is it in this passage about which God wants us to be certain? What's important? What does he want us to know, to understand, and to embrace? Well, in a word, Jesus wants us to think about eternity. We live in a world that thinks only about now, but the book of Ecclesiastes tells us that God has put eternity in our hearts. It's hardwired into who we are. It's something with which we all must reckon. Every morning for over 35 years, an Australian by the name of uh, Arthur Stace did the same thing with a piece of yellow chalk and in copper plate script, he wrote the word eternity on the streets of Sydney. Stace began his daily habit in response to a sermon preached by a fellow named John G. uh, Ridley. Uh, During that sermon, Ridley, he, he cried out, eternity, eternity, I wish that I could sound or shout that word out to everyone in the streets of Sydney. You've got to meet it. Where will you spend eternity? And so for the next 35 years, in in a lovely cursive hand, Stace wrote the word eternity on every piece of concrete from Martin Place at the heart of the city to the suburb of Parramatta about 15 miles away. And in the process, eternity became a part of Sydney lore. In fact, uh, when they celebrated the millennium, they had uh, the word eternity hanging from the Harbor Bridge in Stace's uh, copper plate script. It became a part of Sydney lore as Stace compelled people to consider their destiny. 
Jesus came for eternal purposes. He came the first time as Savior, and he's coming a second time as judge. And that's the note on which Jesus ends this section. It's pretty dark. It's one of judgment and corpses and vultures, and he wants us to feel the weight. He wants us to feel the weight so that we're certain about our own destiny and where we'll spend eternity. Would you please bow your heads? As we come before the Lord, hear Jesus' words in verse 32. Remember Lot's wife. Remember Lot's wife. Followed by his words of explanation in verse 33. He says, whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it. Like Lot's wife. Who left her affections in Sodom as it fell under judgment and paid for it with her life. Jesus goes on. But whoever loses his life now will keep it. The the message is clear. Lose your life by giving it to Jesus, and on the last day you'll keep it and you'll meet him as Savior. But try to preserve your life by keeping it from Jesus, and on the last day you'll lose it and you'll meet him as judge. Today is the day of salvation. Choose Jesus. Choose eternal life. Lord, for those of us who have chosen Jesus, we look forward to the last day, and we do so with great longing, even burning. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, for on that day is our hope. But Lord, for those who have not chosen you, I pray that even today, even now, right now, they would choose you. So that years from now, when they look back and they think of March 12th, 2023, they would be able to say, you know, it all changed on that day. That's the morning on which everything pivoted. I'm alive today because I lost my life then. Holy Spirit, superintend over our meditations and our thoughts as we consider these matters right now. We ask it in Christ's name.